coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. And I've always been that person that goes, black people are not going to end racism. You cannot end something that you're a victim of. <laughs> okay, so like the people that perpetrate it are going to have to be the ones that end it. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game, and I am your host. Today, I have brought you Andre Roberts. This is our Where Are They Now episode. Andre Roberts is a personal trainer and tennis instructor who resides in Beverly Hills, California. He originally shared his story in season two as a bonus episode where he discussed having a segregated childhood and being a black man in today's America. Today, we invited Andre back for a special Where Are They Now episode to hear how things have changed for him in the last year. Much of our conversation is focusing on racial equality and racial justice in light of the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Throughout the discussion, Andre shares his personal experience, the types of conversations he has been having surrounding race, and what sobriety is like for him today. It was so great to get to talk to Andre again. He is just such an intelligent, well-spoken, well-read, interesting, great storyteller, uh, wonderful sobriety. He's just, uh, he's, I just really enjoy his company. And he had uh, a lot of helpful things to tell us about what it's been like in the last year and insight that I had not considered, which is always what I love to hear. I want to learn about the things that I am not considering. So without further ado, I give you my friend, our guest, where are they now? From season two, Andre Roberts. All right, episode 101. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. How's everybody doing? Everybody... Don't do that, because now that song is going to be in my head all day. <laughs> That's cold blooded. That's cold. You know. You know what? I, I know. Later on, I'm be like everybody. I'm like, no, get out of there. Get to the. I have a thing where I wake up with songs stuck in my head. Does that ever happen to anybody else? Like, I wake up and there's a song already stuck in my head. I wish I, I wake up with like uh, chaos in my brain. Mm. Yeah, itty bitty shitty committee. Oh, yeah. My sponsor's husband calls it K-Fuck Radio. Yeah. I literally, <laughs> and I take the dog out in the morning, so I literally, every morning, I'm holding a bag of shit. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. So, Andre, we're doing a Where Are They Now episode. Okay. And this is very exciting to have you back. Thank you for being back. Thank you, guys. So, a year ago, you were on the podcast, and... At the time, we talked a lot. We talked a lot about you growing up, and we talked a lot about the stuff around, around racial inequality that um, you experienced growing up, growing up in a segregated area. And this episode is going to be airing on the first anniversary of the death of George Floyd. Wow. If you can believe that, it's been one year, yeah. um, which is crazy. And so we felt like it was kind of a great combination to have you here talking about what has happened in that year since you did the podcast, how that affected your life. This was the first podcast you've ever done. And also to talk to us about racial justice or injustice in the last year, especially as it relates to this anniversary. So kind of want to open the floor up 
to you to point us in the direction, maybe start somewhere around, you know, what life, what it was like after doing your first podcast after it aired? Good question. First of all, thank you again for the invitation. It was uh, life altering. It was exciting. And it allowed me to do some real introspective things because I listened to myself and I was like, wow. I mean, I kind of know what's in my head, but I've never never had the platform by which to uh, espouse those views openly you know, in one-on-one conversations with people. And so I, I'm there's because of the pandemic, uh, the social interaction is limited with us uh, humans. And, but I'm also a trainer and I teach tennis and I, and I work in recovery. So I, I, I travel here and there because of that. And so I'm able to kind of interact with more people than most people uh, over this last year. And because of that, and, and, and I'm always aware of my quote unquote ambassadorship because mm-hmm. because I've 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 always interacted with people that don't look like me. Right. And because of that, I'm very I'm hyper aware of what I'm saying and what I'm doing on a good day. <laughs> and um and I'm and I'm even more aware of what is around me, my surroundings and the body language of people and reactions of people. I've always been that way. And it's interesting over this last year, uh, the conversations I've had with non-black people and people have uh, reached out to me and and in casual conversations have brought up things. And I brought up things. Um, And especially when I'm one-on-one, when I'm training people, I get some fascinating uh, Mm. opinions. And it also enables me ambassadorship, quote unquote, to give my take on uh, what I'm hearing and also whatever subject matter of the of the day, the news of the day, you know, because I was like stuck and glued to the news over the last year. I am, however, disheartened at some of the things that I see people collectively in this country doing. Some of the things that I follow from my friends and their comment sections scare me scare me. I have a friend that lived here and she moved back to Texas in El Paso, border town, okay? And and I'm I'm I have a trigger finger, you know, when it comes to that keyboard, right? So <laughs> I don't play. So and if it if it if it elicits a visceral response from me, like a physical response, I say I, I ponder, I ponder, I pause, 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 and then I always respond. I self-police what I say because my goal is not to like get into this banter with somebody and gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. My goal in that moment is to uh, try and educate somebody. A lot of times people don't want to hear it, but uh, I know that just by doing that, after those back and forths, he or she will hopefully think about what he or she said and think more importantly about what I said in response to what they said and maybe pause and think of that there's other points of view. You know, we, we're living in historical times in this country and I'm, I was I'm very well educated on what was happening in in this country from its birth to present date and there's not a period a historical period in this country that I haven't like really studied because I'm a firm believer in like if I'm going to be a part of the solution I have to know what the hell was going on and I have to arm myself with facts I can't just be flipping off at the mouth and sounding like angry black man and just saying things just to be saying them and giving uh, a point of view that is like held by vast majority of blacks. Because I'm not that dude. I have varying views depending on what the subject matter is. I'll give you an example. Black Lives Matter. I remember when it started seven, eight years ago, nine years ago. I don't know, something like that. But when I first heard the term, honestly, I was like, who is this? What is this? And I don't like this. And I understood the premise behind it. But I disagreed with it because, in my opinion, it was divisive. Now, I understand those that created and started this group and what their intentions were. But I also understand the reaction, the potential reaction and probable reaction of people when they heard it. And so if I felt that way, being a black man, then how did somebody feel that was 
I won't even say a fence driver, had views that were uh, not necessarily see blacks that didn't necessarily see blacks in a positive light that, that uphold those stereotypes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And, and it's interesting that you say that because I've heard that privately from a lot of people of color who've told me that. And I always say, look, a lot of these things, a lot of these things, you know, the, the, the catchphrase, right? The catchy, the defund mm-hmm. the police, the black lives yeah, matter. These things, one. there's a few more that are, um, that are evading me right this moment, but they really don't encompass what we're actually talking about. And so, that was very confusing. And I asked at one point in the beginning so around George Floyd, which was a really intense, painful moment, you know, for me watching on television what was going on and with George Floyd. And, and at that time, being in support of racial equality and, 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 you know, people being treated well, I asked a question around, hey, shouldn't we be saying that you know, something, aren't we leaving out other people of color? I asked, why is it offensive to say everyone matters or all lives matter or all colors matter, you know, whatever. Why is that offensive? And I got, you know, ostracized, you know, I I got chewed out for that. And I wasn't saying what what, what I now understand what that's supposed to mean. I was saying what I was saying. Gosh, don't you think that people of color across all different, you know, races and combinations exactly. are being, and are, you know, why isn't that the conversation exactly. or, and people explain to me, but that's, you know, in some ways, um, Dak Shepard, and I, I love how he describes this. He describes it as a marketing problem and it's absolutely a marketing problem. That's what it is. And, you know, I, um, I have that issue with it. And so like, I don't espouse... I, I believe in racial equality, but like I've outgrown that whole notion of uh, I, I don't believe in racial pride. OK, I don't I don't like hearing people say black pride, white pride, brown pride, Puerto Rican pride, Irish pride. I don't like any of that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm America is good at labeling things. Right. This country is good at labeling people. Right. Putting jackets on people. And so. To me, by putting a jacket on anybody, it, it, it creates subgroups. And in, in, in essence, it separates us, right? So now, I, like, again, I understand the premise behind it. I just don't agree with, like you said, the marketing, the wording, the language. And I have had conversations with a lot of my friends about this, white and black, and mostly older people. And we just, we just don't see eye to eye. Now, my, my mother sees nothing wrong with it. My mother was a product of the 60s. She was in the civil rights movement. You know what I mean? I used to hold signs as a little boy when police would kill people in Milwaukee and uh, unjustly, you know? Um, And so I get all of that. But I also understand that uh, America is only as strong as its weakest link, right? If the objective is to strengthen America, then we as Americans must strengthen its weakest link. And just by the historical nature of, of blacks in this country, we have to be called the weakest link. And so the only way America is going to grow stronger is to strengthen its weakest link. And so, so like the racist, if he really has pride in America, if he really wants America to be the best country on earth, it behooves even him to uh, want blacks to have more of a economic footprint in this country, more of an educational footprint in this country. You know what I mean? And so people, people don't see that. See, it's not pie to me, right? It doesn't run out. You know what I mean? Equality is not pie. I almost swore. (laughs) It's not pie. And so people look at it as if I give you some equality and somehow I'm taken away from my equality and that's BS. It's just not, it's just not it. And so that we have to understand that in, in, in the scope of how ingrained not just we won't just call it racism, but racial bias, right? Because there's people that like aren't racist. They don't see a black person, or a black person doesn't see a white person, or, or, or Asian person, or whatever, and go and they have to have this. They have to well up this anger, manufacture this anger. There's people out there like that. 
I, but I don't, I don't understand. I, you have to, to hate somebody. You have to like manu- see them and manufacture this anger and rage and like snarl up and your whole central nervous system tightens up. That's a lot of work, right? So I, don't, I think there's people that don't, that don't espouse those views, but they have uh, racial biases that they're very unaware of. They're very unaware of. Because I have friends that say racially insensitive shit and they don't even know it. And sometimes I'm like, I give them the look and, and they, and they kind of get it. And sometimes I'll say something to them. I'll go. And, and what I like to do is when somebody says something that's racially insensitive about another ethnic group around mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. I step in then, you know what I mean? So I went to UCLA undergrad and I, I, I at least in my group of people, I was a minority in the groups that I hung out in. And it was very interesting to me. Uh, I think that was my first experience with that. Very educational, also interesting how prejudiced, biased, whatever word you want to use, racist, these other groups were against each other. And I found it wow. to be so interesting how some of the most, I would be the only, you know, Caucasian person in the room. And we would be talking about diversity. We'd be talking about racial justice. We'd be talking all these things because I was involved in a lot of those groups. And then the, so we would break out of the official, because I was in student government and we would break out of the official capacity of the meeting. And I would, we'd break into the social aspect and the shit that people said about each other, the mm. people of, you know, different cultures, colors, I was like, you guys, this is, that is equally as bad as the things yeah. that you are well, talking about trying to eradicate. Oh, some, something that, that just sparked something in my head. So during the times of slavery in this country, the, when slave masters would like rape the women and have children, those light-skinned children or fair-skinned children, whatever you want to call, they would give them easier jobs to do. They would allow them to do not the back-breaking work, right? And so over the course of time, in, in, during the time that Africans were enslaved in this country, light-skinned people had it better than darker-skinned counterparts. And so fast forward to present day when I was a teenager, my brother's very dark skinned. My sister's a little lighter than me. We used to clown him about his skin color, not knowing why. I remember cartoons that used the word blackie. You know, uh, when I was in college, I wrote a paper about, uh, about racism in cartoons. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I said all that to say in the black community, there's a song by Public Enemy. And in the song, it goes, the hater taught hate. That's why we gangbang. And that's something that always resonated with me. The slave masters programmed us to hate the darker of us. They treated the darker of us more harshly than the lighter of us. And post-slavery, the same was true. There's people in my family, they used to have this term that could pass, that they looked almost white. They got treated differently. And again, my roots are in Mississippi, DeKalb, Mississippi. They got treated differently. My grandmother was one of 13 children. Her 12 siblings, especially the females, used to dog her. Like I, she told me personally about how they would treat her and even her own father and her own mother, how they would treat her, you know? And so I get that how in a racial group, the people treat people differently. You can even say that, I mean, in high school, when somebody's overweight or the girl is prettier than another girl, the girl looks nerdier than how they're treated. That's very true of, of shades of hues in the black community to this day. To this day, it happens. You know, there's, it's like, it's like just, there's jokes, just like there's racist jokes. There's racial jokes about blacks, uh, darker skinned blacks and lighter skinned blacks that, that, are well known in the black community. You know what I mean? And, and so, so um, historically, and that goes back to the programming of us and something I wanted to make sure I talked about today is the inferiority complex in essence is what I'm talking about. That was programmed into us. And, and there's people that are my age, older or younger 
that they're not deprogrammed yet. They're not deprogrammed. I don't know how or why. I'm one of those blessed ones that sees that, that can, that can step out of it and look in and, and then analyze it and see it and know what, what it is. But I am, thank God, because there's a lot of, there's people that are making six, seven figures that don't even know they have it. You know what I mean? It's not like a socioeconomic thing, you know, it's prevalent everywhere. Do you think it's related to your recovery, the deep work that you've done? No, no. I I think it's because I grew up in the hood and I used to go, I was in a boy's home when I was a kid and it was in the suburbs, but it was in my, the county. I I used to go to white areas. I, I went to a school that was predominantly white and I made white friends and I had friends, I had Mexican friends, I had Asian friends, uh, Laotian friends, Vietnamese friends, Puerto Rican friends. I just always gravitated towards uniqueness. And to me, anybody that did look like me was unique to me because I grew up around all black folks. You know what I mean? And so I'm fortunate in that. I had a very unique upbringing. And I look back on my life and I was an abused child, you know, and but I was so lucky and blessed in some respects because some of the experiences that I had shaped and molded me in for my endeavors of today, or, or the things that I do today and how I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm like a step ahead in some respects, you know, inwardly. Um, yeah. And so the inferiority thing was not what I wanted to talk about. I was using that as a segue into, because people talk about because of all the things that been happening about the, uh, the trauma the generational trauma. Well, I'm here to tell you guys is it's not just black trauma. People got to start realizing that shit. It's not just black, black trauma. It's white trauma too. Because if I was, I was traumatized by inferiority complex. Don't you think that if I have a superiority complex and I'm on the other side that I wasn't all traumatized by that shit as well? Of course I was. There's white people in this country that have been programmed, like I've been programmed to feel inferior and somehow I ship that. There's people that have been programmed to feel superior and they don't know it because they've been ingrained with superiority complexes and they don't know that they're traumatized by that too. That's a trauma that's been inflicted on them and, they, and that needs to be treated just like inferiority complexes need to be treated. Do you think that we've come any closer to, I don't even know what the word would be, but do you think we've come any closer to improvement in the last year, you know, since, do you think that George Floyd brought us any improvement? Honestly, we'll not be able to answer that question until things get back to normal. To be honestly, there's no way to me to gauge it because like in order to take the pulse of the society, you have to be out and amongst the society. Right. And we're not out really amongst one another now. So I think but I do tell you, I do say this. My do do I I don't know for sure because I haven't had been able to have the observation. But what I can say, I can speculate on is when things open up and things get back to normal. I I believe that more white people are going to start calling out white people on their stuff. And I've always been that person that goes, black people are not going to end racism. You cannot end something that you're a victim of. <laughs> okay, so like the people that perpetrate it are going to have to be the ones that end it. And what I mean by that is white people are going to have to not give passes to other white people when they're in the company with them in private and there's only white people around. So there's a saying, so there's a bunch of commentary that I'm hearing around cancel culture and cancel culture being something, you know, that, that many people are very aware. Even I am incredibly aware of cancel culture. And some, a term I heard recently was council culture, where we educate each other instead of canceling each other, we educate each other and that that will be changed. And my big concern about what I am seeing as it relates to what you're talking about, which is that white people are going to be, or people, you know, people in leadership positions, whatever it is, they are going to be the people to bring in social justice. 
that the focus is on canceling and not educating and that that is a mistake because you push people into hiding as opposed as opposed to encourage them into changing and i don't think people are changing when you cancel them no and you can't you can't you cannot legislate somebody's heart (laughs) right right that's not happening and people like being lorded over by people is not going to work as a matter of fact i want to know what i want to know how you feel tell me how you feel tell me what you think i want to know i don't i don't I think it's ridiculous that a stand-up comedian, stand-up comedians are afraid to get their stuff videotaped or recorded for fear that somebody's going to be offended by a joke. A joke. Not something that they really espouse, but a joke. What's happening, I believe, is a pendulum shift, and pendulums generally are way too extreme, and at some point they correct themselves. Now, I'm a loose cannon. I'm able to say, I speak my mind, because I don't, you know, I... I'm, I'm a free man and I have strong opinions. Uh, I keep them to myself if I choose to, but if I choose not to, and I give you my opinion, believe me, it really, really is my opinion. I'm not, I don't water anything down when I speak. I don't, I, I disagree with this quote unquote cancel culture. And, and it's just a political football that people use to, to censor people that they disagree with. Who in the hell, who in the hell? Look, I was raised in the hood. I just happen to have white friends. I got some homies that don't necessarily talk to white people, that don't deal with white people, that are really secretly afraid of white people. There's some white people that don't know white black people, that don't deal with black people, that are probably more than likely a little bit afraid of white people. And guess what happens when, when that kicks in? Fear. Fear turns immediately into anger. You know why? Because I'm 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 going to protect what I'm afraid of, and it has really and really the root of the fear is like not being educated, like you said, and and not trying to find somebody that doesn't look like you to get to know. You know what I mean? But there's all white towns, there's all black hoods. They don't. The only thing they know about other ethnic ethnic groups is what they hear about on the news, or if you if you're getting this if you're getting filtered subjective, opinionated stuff, you're being progress. It's no different than what was happening back in, in Jim Crow era. You know, uh, Joe Lewis, when he won the heavyweight title in the editorial the very next day in the newspaper, it had him in on the editorial cartoon look with a gorilla, a gorilla face, gorilla hands, and this white lady that was leaning up with her hands cowered and him cowering over the white one. That, that's so so what they tried to do that day to take away from like him becoming the heavyweight champion of the world is be careful. These black dudes, they're, they're out to get your women. Right. On the editorial and editorials that ran all around the country. That's that's powerful. But that's what they did back then. The thing with Dr. Seuss, people don't realize Dr. Seuss put out. They're like, oh my God, they're canceling three green eggs and ham. Ain't nobody thinking about no damn green eggs and ham. The dude was using the word nigger, pick a nigger. Look up, research Dr. Seuss and some of the things that the dude used to do. Look up, look at old cartoons of Popeye when Popeye would eat spinach and he would like knock over like these 30 Arabs and then they would fall prostrate to him and go salami, salami, baloney. And you know, the word that they use when they're praying is salam, right? And, and like how r- racist cartoons were and how they shaped us. Like, it's no wonder that we have biases as Americans living in this country. Right? What That's should we do bias. with, so what should we do with those things, right? So, so. Talk about it. Dr. Seuss, right? And and I've, I've never seen the Dr. Seuss stuff. It didn't come my way. All I saw was green eggs and ham and, and the other stuff. So what should we do with the people who, or with the material, should we cancel everything Dr. Seuss ever did? I, you, know, you know what? I don't think, I think the, the, the free market economy should determine even the racist stuff. If well, they want, canceled it. If you, no, no, you can still buy Dr. Seuss books. They took certain things that he had out of circulation. So let me ask you this. Why is, why is Mein Kampf available for purchase as a historical document? What, changes something from a historical document to something that we no longer allow to be sold 
And I, they, I mean, I don't, I'm they, not, they, I don't care about Dr. Seuss. No, I'm no. just wondering. You can, still, you can still purchase it. It's just that companies were not allowing, are not allowing that material to be sold through them or they're not using it as educational material. You can still get the stuff, but like Mein Kampf, that's kind of heavy air. Like <laughs> I went to a, bookstore there's a german like strip mall where it's all these german shops you know and i go into this one store it's a bookstore and it got they have like these old nine old nine millimeter rubers and stuff the dude wouldn't even come out of the back room to come and ask me if i wanted to like and i'm looking he's got mind comp he's got nazi memorabilia i'm like i'm in straight up i'm in the third reich right here you know what i'm saying i'm like and you know it fascinated me to go to that mall because i studied german in high school in middle school and high school and in college for a couple of years Right. And I'm like, cool. I can go. And I'm like, ooh, mine comp. Ooh, another mine comp. Ooh, a mine comp leather bound. Hmm. And I go and I see all, they don't just have guns. They're all like German guns. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, wow, this is, this is, they don't want me in here. <laughs> well, I think it'll be interesting to see how we, how we categorize, because we're really talking about categorizing, just generally categorizing. And I think it'll be interesting to see, you, we're, ta- we're looking at the pendulum and how we categorize things from historic information. Like this is the way things work. Because, you know, it's funny is I see a lot of stuff, you know, I love Lucy and lots of stuff around as it relates to women shows that were that bewitched and different things that were on, you know, things like that. I that, dream of Jeannie. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff in to me, when I see it, it's it, it's a commentary about how we treated women. And except ex, that it's also historical. When I see that stuff, I'm like, wow. The thought to me is, wow, look how far we've come. Or even when I read the big book Mm -hmm. of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a chapter in there called Two Wives. Mm -hmm. And when I think about, uh, you know, uh, reading that as a sober female alcoholic, young female alcoholic, I was incensed. Like, why is this in here? What is this shit? I, you know, get it out. And what, um, and and I remember I had a sponsor who was like, well, it's, you know, part of the, we just read it and it's not meant for, a, you know, and this whole thing. And she had a, had a whole commentary about it. And it, my perspective is, well, okay, so this was written in the 30s and this is a commentary. This is a historical document and it includes things from history. And we can take it out, which I actually wouldn't be opposed to, but whatever. We can, we can take it out or leave it in, but it's not a commentary it's a common, it's a historical piece. And so we have to decide as a nation, and I don't know how this will pan out, but we have to decide on what what's historical commentary about things that were going on at that period of time, because every period of time has some horrible shit that went down and what we're allowing to be, you know, what we're what we're um, sanitizing, because I'm, I'm afraid we're sanitizing history. Are you kidding me? Like, I think history has always been been overly sanitized in this country. But going back to the television thing, All in the Family. Remember All in the Family? Archie mm-hmm. Bunker? I wish they would air that every day. I think they should wear it every day and everybody should watch it every day because and laugh at the buffoonery of bigotry. Why not? Because you put a mirror up to people. This is how you, when you behave like this, this is how you look. Now, I believe that there's powers at work that decide and dictate and determine what we should be fascinated by or driven by or uh, angry about on any given day. I don't. So I don't like look at the squirrels. I I don't chase the squirrels. I, I, I look at things as they come and just like the blips on the screen and look at things and things in their, their totality, you know? And so like I said earlier, that pendulum swing is there, and it would be interesting to see where it swings back to. But make no mistake, make no mistake, America, things have changed in this country, and they're going to continue to change. And whether you agree with the change or not is totally up to you, because the change is not going to stop. There are too many people in this country that know too much about the truth and too much about the past and too much about 
where they want see the potential of where this society can be to be drugged back into that abyss. It's not happening. You, I don't care how much you legislate. I don't care how much you oppress. I don't care how many you murder. I don't care how many you censor. I don't care how many people's character you assassinate. It doesn't matter because the train, the train left 20, 30 years ago. And it's been going ever since. I saw it in small towns. I was in small towns in Wisconsin and I saw it with my own eyes. And I'm like, and it's, ha- it's, it, it's, it's connected to that. So the connectivity is there. This country is on a course that is steady and things that aren't a part of the future are just going to start to slowly dissipate. But you have to understand something. They're in the throes of death. That shit is dying out. And it's, it's fighting for its life. You understand? And because it's fighting for its life, it's kicking and screaming. That shit's getting choked out. It's kicking and screaming. It really is. But it's dying. It's dying. And as it starts to die, people that were straddling the fence are going to be like, ooh, I'm glad that shit is dead. Now I can just be me. Because I really, because like I had some friends that were just, that were like that. And I, it didn't sit well with me. And I, I didn't have enough courage to speak up or to say how I felt to say how what I thought. But now that's done. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder, love me some green tea, golden grind turmeric latte blend, and prana chai original blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. You mentioned um, death, and that was something when when we met, we talked about, I asked you about George Floyd. I asked you about what that was like seeing that. And, you know, you said it was eerily familiar. We talked about that. And, and of course, for me, it was not. For me, it was like, wait, this is real. This is happening still now. And, you know, we, we had discourse about that. How did you feel when the verdict was read for, the, for Derek Chauvin? First of all, I was on the tennis court. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great place to be. I was just like, I wasn't trying to be, you know, I, I was just like, they better convict him. <laughs> because I know that like, it was going to be, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it would have been, I don't know. Because see, I mean, look at slavery. Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves for whatever reason economic reasons. The South could not compete. The, the North could not compete with the South economically because they had free labor. Nobody right. talks about that. Yep. They didn't say that Abraham Lincoln was, God bless him, he freed the slaves. Yeah, but what, what was the real reason? So I believe that like there was a lot of uh, uh, resistance to slavery from, from the slaves then, and they were fighting. There was like these flare-ups all over the country. If you look at history, there was like people fighting and like taking over these plantations. I believe that it would have been better off if blacks would have fought for their freedom and literally shed blood. Not that they didn't, 
but shed more blood, America would be a different country today. So in that sense, I, I package this up in that sense. Maybe he should have, they should have found him not guilty and just showed him what the justice system is really about, right? And be, be, uh, so people could be more appalled, not violent, just be appalled. I mean, and, and, you know what I mean? They would have been. So, so here's a very interesting thing. So I happen to think this is, just, you know, Ashley's opinion for what it's worth. And it's based in nothing but my opinion. Um, no, no medical degree or otherwise. But I happen to think that he's guilty and that he should be held Me responsible, too. that that was horrendous. And, and all of the other factors, you know, held constant. I still my opinion still stays. However, I do think it would be. In, as it relates to a unbiased, you know, free and fair trial, <laughs> that God help you if you stood in the way of Derek Chauvin being pro- being found guilty. I mean, I I'm just saying in the I don't think it there was a world where it was going to happen. But let's just say that we that was a situation. I I. I can't imagine anyone wanting to be that person. Would but you that's wanna... happened before. That's happened before thousands of times. Where people have have not even gone to trial. I mean, are you know how many ghosts there are? Yeah. In this yeah. country. Like for real. Like 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 ponder that shit. Like oh, no. how, how I... many hundreds of thousands of murders have happened? I mean, and... didn't Rodney King's didn't the cops for Rodney King go free? Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 insane. Well, and there was a fear for me, like, oh my god, if this happens. But I think I think um, I don't think that would have. I don't. I think that would have been violent. I think there there would have been. Oh, without a doubt, it, it would have been an but absolute. But I, but I think that there would have been more people that would have not been violent, and that would have been appalled. Oh yes, by it. yes. And there, and I think that there would be a greater. Uh, momentum towards change. You, know you do what I mean? okay. So yeah. you, in some ways, what I hear you saying, uh, putting on my therapist hat, in some ways, you're saying that the the conviction did a disservice because it didn't make us fight for it. Yeah, I, I just believe that if had it been different, it would have been it would have been uh, a greater momentum. Yeah, exactly. Your answer. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. But it's been a greater momentum and a greater push because, you know, movements kind of ebb and flow. They have to grab energy and we, we need energy from stuff. And so if there's nothing to energize, so it was almost like he's guilty. Okay, relax. Now, the sentencing comes up. I like the fact that they got federally indicted. Nobody's the bigger news was those cops getting federally indicted for failure to intervene. What that does yes, is that agree. puts on notice all the cops in the country. Agree. Your partner, you know your partner's a, a, a piece of shit. If your partner is continues in that behavior, just know that if you don't do something, the feds, the state attorneys general can't can't save you. The, the district attorney can't save you. Mm-hmm. The feds come in. Y'all both going to jail or you might go to jail and your partner doesn't. <laughs> and he's the one that committed the crime. That's I completely agree that so that's that was the, the big to me. That was the biggest thing. That was, was the, like, the was smoke walking. out of the century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really believe that was the biggest thing to come out of all of this. I mean, I've been amazed to see. And again, this comes back to right. Like white privilege or whatever you however you want to categorize it. I've been amazed to see you know, these people who still are shooting unarmed black people. Like, wait, seriously? Did you not? You're wearing a fucking body cam. <laughs> what, what I mean, that seriously, it, that it, that's what I mean. It's like, to me, it's <laughs> like, it goes beyond racism to a whole new realm of like complete brazen racial we, we got to get them. We got to get, we got their, their mentality is we got to get them. We got to kill. We got to kill these. I'm telling you that their mindset is, but there's no self-preservation. It doesn't matter. It does though, because you, that, that tells me if you rob a bank, there's people wanna, like that here though. Yeah. But that shit is wild to me. That is wild. It's, to me. It's not, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I'm aware of that, you know, like, I'm really aware of that. Like there are people that see me 
as an animal. There's people in this country that look at anybody that doesn't look like them Not with as those glasses. an animal. <laughs> Ah. Nobody can see it. He's wearing. He's wearing like These they my, look. Um, they look bright pink for goodbye me. Goodbye, Norma Jane glasses. These are my Elton Johns. Yes, you're Elton Johns. Every time I get on a screen, t- um, uh, computer screen, somebody always says something about these glasses. I mean, every single time, never. This, fail. Is, this is the first time I mentioned it, so I just had to. <laughs> so you have people that um, are so filled with rage, so filled with hate that they put on blinders to the fact that they could be found out and something done. And some people think that they just, they have the right and the privilege to just kill. But sh- I mean, it's, it's let's, the go, truth. let's go further it's the truth. than that. Let's go further than that. Right. So, okay. You are, you're fucking, okay. Let's, let's just categorize this person, right? Billy Bob is racist cop. Okay. And Billy Bob is wearing a body cam. He knows he's wearing a body cam. In this case, it's a, he just for, you know, easy. And he shoots an unarmed black person because he has decided that all black people are going to commit crimes. Okay. And he knows that they're going to look at the body cam and that, you know, it's a high probability that it's going to come out that, and, and maybe that's the high probability. Maybe it's okay. But let, even, but let's just say, let's just say it's a low probability, but it's still it's still a possibility. Then what the fuck happens? You're going to jail. Do you remember what I said earlier about trauma, about the inferiority, about the generational trauma? Right. And the how, trauma it applies to, to how, how it applies to white people. Right. They don't, there's no example. self, there's they, no self preservation. He's been traumatized too. Like everybody in this country has been victimized by it. It's just on opposite sides of a, of, of a magnetic field. So it's the same thing. It's just on opposite sides. And that's a prime example of that. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to traumatize each other into mm-hmm. the same fucking prisons, mm-hmm. right? We're going to trauma. It's agree. like traumatizing each other on the same ends. And, and, and mm-hmm. this kind of violence, we're, you're ending up in the same place. And to me, I'm thinking, if I'm a racist cop, I think the last place that I want to end up in is incarcerated. <laughs> Well, for killing an unarmed you, you have person to understand, of color. You have to understand also how long he's been doing it. Right. See, he's and been how doing many times it. he's yeah. been doing it before smartphones were invented. Sweetie. Right, right. So it, it's kind of like him putting on his socks and shoes in the morning. How yeah. many? My thing is how many people are locked up for the next 20 to 50 years because of this man? Oh, I'm sure. You know what I'm saying? Many, how, yeah. many ki- how many kids don't have their father? How many wives don't have their husbands because of that one cop? Now let's add a DA. Let's add a detective. Let's add a homicide detective. Let's add a loan officer, a mortgage lender. Let's add a fifth grade teacher to that mix. Let's add a college professor to that mix. How many fucking lives are they affecting? A lot. We're just talking. I just named 10 people. I just named 10 people. I was listening to Michelle Obama's book, which great read, by the way. And she talks about, she grew up on Southside Chicago mm-hmm. and her, yeah, yeah, real rough. But she, she had a, her mother and a teacher. No, no, no. It was her mother. Her mother she was going to be put in a class that was apparently like in the basement in, in grade school, basement of the school mm-hmm. that was not advanced. Let's just, that's a nice way of saying it. And, <laughs> and her mother basically fought to have her put in this other class, which put her <laughs> on an advanced track. And basically long and short of it is that the kids who stayed in that base room class, that, that basement classroom, went on to not do very well. And the kids who were plucked out by some, you know, confluence of luck and right timing ended up doing very well. And that was their, you know, ticket out, if you will. And how, how, you know, seconds and inches we talk about in, in program about how we're, you know, we we're here by seconds and inches and same thing in situations like that, how much 
one person, a teacher, uh, uh, and how, you know, can help a person and how many people need to fail you in Mm. order for, in order, how many people touch your situation and how many of those people need to fail you in order, how many people need to help and versus how many need to fail you in order to get you to end up where you are. And I think that's, it was a really interesting, you know, she's obviously extraordinary and people came out everywhere in which way between, but it's just a very interesting commentary on how someone can be greatly affected by someone that isn't even their parent or exactly, you know, just someone who's has a meaningful relationship with you in the community. Uh, my, uh, grandmother married this guy who's not my paternal grandfather his son and he left my my, the the guy that my grandmother married left this guy who was a principal at my middle school so he left this guy's this principal's mother for my grandmother he suspended me nine times altered the trajectory of my education i had to leave that school he didn't have any reason to suspend me nine times but that's an yeah. example of people that could fail you. I remember when I was in college, in political science class, the professor was obviously a Republican. He had a picture of him shaking hands with Ronald Reagan, right? And I was late on the paper. At this time, I had gotten into drugs. So I was, you know, I was, I did shit late sometimes. <laughs> I, I, I go, you know, I, I go to his office, right? And, uh, I did shit late sometimes. Yeah. Best line office, ever. I go to this dude's office to try to get an extension for my paper. I got like nine books to read. It's not coming in tomorrow, man. I can't make it tomorrow. And um, he goes, well, why are you, why is it that you're um, late? going to be late. I said, well, professor, now this is a lie I tell. My girlfriend's pregnant and I've just been dealing with a lot. You know what this bastard told me? Wear a condom. No. He said, son, you know, uh, why don't you quit college and go get a job at a fast food restaurant? Exactly. Oh, jeez. Oh, my goodness. I said, you know what? And when he said it, I didn't, the look on my face didn't reveal what I thought or nor did it reveal that I understood exactly who he was in that moment and what he was really trying to do. He was trying to take one more brother out of circulation of getting an education. I said, you know what? I said, at some point, I might have to do that, sir. But um, can I get an extension for this paper? And he said, yeah. He said, let me know when you're going to quit school. I said, I will. And I said, thank you for the extension. And I went and I did the paper. And I did the paper on Nixon because I saw the picture of Ronald Reagan in this thing. <laughs> and the last line in the paper was, it wasn't that Nixon did anything wrong, in my opinion. It was that he got caught. And the bastard gave me an A. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's stuff like it's, it's, uh, it's stuff like that, that, you know, people reveal themselves in such amazing ways. And I think I I always wonder, you know, I, I don't think it's racist related, but I wonder what ways I reveal myself like good and bad, you know, Mm -hmm. because I think we all reveal ourselves in good and bad ways in things we don't even see. And I suspect that that's, you know, that to me is the be- the part where, where council culture and, and educating each other is really important. I've been very educated over this past year on, I mean, like I've told you, I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say this. And we talked about this. I did not know that it was as bad as people wearing a body cam. I thought if you wore a body cam, that that would stop. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, I, I still, to be honest with you, I still really struggle with that because I, it's crazy. There is no law. There is no. There's, there's like rules and guidelines at department, but there's no laws that say that they have to turn their body cams on. Right. I mean, and that's the fact true. that they're so brazen yeah, to have them should. on. Right. They should just stay on 24-7 anyways. Well, I don't give a damn if they're eating at a restaurant they should be on. Sales companies on. record all of their calls for quality assurance, assurance. purposes. Okay. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, you're, wow. it's, 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 we do it 
Yeah. We do it in 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 our corporate world with the blockchain. Cryptocurrency is all about yeah. being traceable and 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 transparent and all these. I mean, it's it's in it's asinine, and it also. I mean, if if the what I hear from you know both sides, one of the things is like, look, we deal with really ugly, gnarly things, and that that requires a certain amount of discretion and a certain amount of know-how and so on and so forth. I'm like, okay, well then the body cam will may even reinforce like, Hey, look, look how many times I was attacked in this scenario when I turned my back or look how many times like you can, you can show that the body cam, the, the surveillance, whatever you want to call it can be both, you know, something to hold you accountable and something to hold us accountable to say, exactly. look, we're not, these people are not adequately armed, prepared, or this was a circumstance where they didn't have the, the, you know, counseling skills that they needed for the scenario. Right. And, and it would make their know, job better. Right. So it's, 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 it's accountability for all of us. And I think that that's a huge piece. And I really learned about that. And, um, and, you know, I'm open to the education and a lot of people I know are open to education, but we're too afraid. I met, I I had a guy on um, the show who is a transgender man and I asked him all of the questions. Okay. I was like, okay, so tell me what I can say. Tell me what I can't say. How do I say it? Why is this offensive? How come I can't ask you about surgery? How come I can ask you about this surgery, but not that surgery? Like, tell me everything. Right. And I asked him all the questions because he, because he was allowing me to do that. And because I want to learn, but I've been afraid to ask those questions and why I did it publicly was I knew that he was a safe person to do it with. I knew that, you know, he wasn't judging me and I wanted other people to hear me ask the questions because I know everybody has them. And that's the same thing is that if we open this up to educating each other instead of shaming each other for having the question in the first place, exactly, we're going to do better. Yeah. I have an idea that I'm working on now with, uh, I want to be a unifying force. I want to be part of the solution. And this thing I want to do, I'm trying to find some, some funding for is to, uh, take a, me be a part of the crew and to go, uh, to cities and rural areas all around the country to barbershops, because that's where realness is. Any man you ever talk to will tell you, you, nothing's off limits in a barbershop to talk about. And I would like to make create a show where I go from place to place so I can show our similarities and show people that somebody that in, in the rural part of Alabama is not different than uh, somebody that lives in Detroit, Michigan. And they'll see that. They talk about the same things. If I can make this thing uh, successful, if I, can, if I can create it, get it started, and uh, have some, some, some success with it, it's something I've been thinking about for a couple of years now, and I've kind of been working towards it during this COVID period, this pandemic, because I believe, like you, when you're talking about communication, that's like a way I believe that we could communicate with one another. Because if somebody sees that in this barbershop, in this rural town in Mississippi, is talking about his kid's education, his wife, his problems, his joys, his loves, his pain, and they can hear a guy in uh, Baltimore talk about the same things with the slightly different dialect, then people will start to see that we're not that much different. And uh, but by the end of this year, I want to have filmed a few episodes of it. That's awesome. That's really something that I really, I really want to, to happen because it's a need for it. And that's, I was, and the reason I, Thought about doing it was a few years ago. I was in this barbershop and I was like, man, people need to hear this conversation. They would be fascinated by it. If they would be fascinated by that conversation, imagine all the other conversations that happen in all the barbershops and nothing should be off limits. Because when you see, when you're in a bar, when you're in a beauty salon, it's you and the, in the uh, technician talking and you kind of are whispering to each other and telling yourself, telling gossip to one another. But in a barbershop, it could be five, 12 chairs. All those chairs could be full and all the barbers are there and somebody says something and they say it loud enough for everybody to hear and everybody has a right to chime in. And it's fascinating to be in that discussion. That's part of like the coolness of being in a barbershop 
it's to you're looking forward to engaging in the discussion. You start you find out what's happening in the hood that that week. You know what I mean? Right. You know, that two weeks or however long it, you go without getting a haircut, you go takes you to get a haircut. Yeah, and and I, and I really um and I know it would be beneficial to the society, American society. I, I really believe that. I really believe that. I really believe that people are going to like gravitate towards it. Uh, and <laughs> you have one problem. What's that? What's is, are you going to grow hair to be in the barber shop, or what's the nah, plan? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> they can just take the straight razor and just line this up around here. Huh? No, we're going to keep this low, you know, because if I let it grow, you can yeah. st- see that I'm losing hair and I can't. Oh, I'm too see, vain. I'm too okay, vain. Okay. All right. It. All right. All right. See, I, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Barbershops, because you guys get your hair cut mm-hmm. so much more regularly and and sometimes you get your faces shaved, you get your faces shaved. So it's a much I can see that it would be a much more. You know, when I when I go, it's not that regularly. It's not that regular. So I'm catching up with my, right. you know, hairdresser in in her life. Whereas you guys are going so much more regularly. And see, here's the thing about the barbershop: like uh, uh, rival gang members can go into a barbershop and they don't. They know. They know. They don't. That's like sacred ground. They they know Is not to really? bring that bullshit in there. Oh, absolutely. You never heard of nobody getting shot up in a barbershop. But they don't go to different barbershops. No. If you, if, if you if you like that barber, you go to that barbershop. And it's like it's like, it's like wherever you grew up going to and y'all, y'all get older and then your boy's in a different gang and you, y'all see each other. It's just like, or your enemy. Ceasefire. It's just like, yeah, it's just, it is what it is. I see, I see you somewhere else, but like not here. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. I wanted to tell you this. I hate your fucking haircut. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> So my my wrap up question for you is how and and you answered the question with regard to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. How can those of us how how I guess who are not people of color, whatever that means, you know, in in each of our contexts, what can we do? What can those of us, you know, who who aren't people of color help do to be allies, to be helpful? Uh, uh, two things. One on an individual level, when you hear people talk about other ethnic groups around you, when there's no other, when there's just white people around, don't argue with them. Educate them and let them know that that's not how most people think, you know, and, and, and chastise them in a way that makes them look at themselves and not in a way that makes them fills them up with any more hate than they already feel. And secondly, talk to... Don't be afraid to talk to to people of other ethnic groups about what how they see what's happening. To ask them their opinions, ask them like like you're doing this interview with me. Ask them the question one on one. It's very vital. It's very important that we engage one another in conversation. We have to walk through that fear and that uncomfortability of asking that awkward question because you really want to know. The only way we're going to know is to ask the question. What do you think about? Because then you get to see what somebody else's perspective is. If you you don't have a if you, you I don't have a problem asking somebody that looks like me what their perspective of something is. So why should I have a problem asking somebody that doesn't look like me what their perspective is on something? Because I want to I want to I want to hear different viewpoints on things. So I get a round, well-rounded opinion about what's happening. You know what I mean? That's very important to me because I, then I don't, I'm not limited in my scope. You know what I mean? I'm not limited in my scope. If I'm limited in my scope, I just think oh, just my opinion matters. And my opinion is just my, one of millions, please. I'm, my ego isn't that big. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I adore having you on. It's so fun. And I am just really grateful that we got the opportunity to catch up and especially on this anniversary. And I I just, I really think I love your idea. And I, I love being able to chop it up with you about this stuff because I feel really comfortable saying and asking the questions that I think 
you know, and I, and that, that feels great. And I, I think a lot of us have those questions. How can we be helpful? What can we, you know, what's the perspective? And I, you know, and I think it's just more of these conversations need to take place. So I really, really appreciate you. And, and I'm really grateful that you're here on this, you know, historical day, the first anniversary. It's incredible. It's incredible. Um, God willing, you know, we're okay. Yeah. We're already okay. Cause like I said, the train is moving forward, sweetie. So don't trip. I mean, we can't, even if we wanted to stop it, it wouldn't stop. Just, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to pilot my own train. Exactly. <laughs> I've got enough problems doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I got captains on every caboose, oh you know, just trying to, oh man, it's, uh, it's, it's been a wild year. I'm looking forward yeah. to, I'm looking forward to things opening up and, and all of us having more and more conversations. Get out this weekend. Please mm. get out and do something this weekend. Oh yeah. Doing a lot. You know, oh, I you know one more thing I wanted to tell you that super timely, but yesterday I was I have one of my uh twin boys is is very inquisitive and uh verbally inquisitive and mm. he asked me um I I forget how it came up, but he asked me what hate was yesterday. Wow. And he always does this to me. He asked me these questions that I'm just like, I have no idea how to answer that. And he asked me what hate was yesterday. We were walking the dog and, um, you know, and I had to go through and, and start talking about like, it's this really mean, upsetting feeling, um, you know, just trying to explain to a four-year-old what hate is. Yeah, Sometimes I forget, you know, he knows what I don't like it because he, oh, he asked me if I hate spiders and oh. I, and, and I said, well, I don't hate spiders. I just, you know, I don't care for them, you know, and he's like, well, what's hate mean? And it, it very interesting. We all know what dislike means, but to explain hate to a four-year-old, because I don't think he hates anything. Right. I was about to say, he's, there's nothing that caught falls in his wheelhouse of hate. No, yeah. no, uh. even. And uh, it was just a really interesting thing about a really interesting experience as a parent, these little parent moments where you're like, yeah, that's heavy. We learn about this stuff. We learn, we learn what it means. We learn what it feels like. We, we manufacture, you know, this, these stuff and just a really important thing to remember that we are teaching our kids about, about what these things are and what they mean. And, um, you know, what I, I told my son is that it was a really mean feeling. Mm Mm-hmm. That's incredible. He yeah. educated you. Yeah, I know, <laughs> you know right? What I mean? He does wow, all the time. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. You're such a lucky woman. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks, Andre. I really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.